What's up, Saw Company? How y'all doing? All right, I'm just going to say this one last time. Go to the fall retreat. Like, if you're not signed up, I, I seriously, wholeheartedly believe that you have nothing better to do next weekend than to go to the fall retreat. I believe that with my heart. So if you want to challenge me, have you guys ever seen on social media where there's the meme of the guy sitting at the table that says, like, challenge me? That's me after service. If you can stump me, let's go. I'll do 100 push-ups if you can stump me. All right. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Jordan Howell. Uh, I'm on staff here with Salt Company as well as a men's ministry leader. And I just got to say, it is ridiculous that this is my job. I seriously love being here. I love our students, and the opportunity just to come here tonight and open up God's word together is an incredible, incredible gift. So thank you for being here. You guys are a joy to me, and I say that wholeheartedly. You are a joy to me. Thank you for being here. Before we dig into uh, tonight's message, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, uh, but have you guys ever heard of the social media phenomenon called Today Years Old? Anybody? Okay, so the concept is obvious truths that seem so basic that we can't miss them, yet we do, right? I've stumbled across this time to time. It's ebbed and flowed over the last couple years, but I have a few examples for us. How old were you when you found out that Explorer in Spanish is Exploradora? That's why she's Dora the Explorer. (laughs) Mind blown. Okay, I didn't take a lick of Spanish, so when I first saw that, I was today years old like three days ago. (laughs) when I learned this. What's the next one? I was today years old when I realized breakfast is only called that because it's the first time you're eating since the day before, hence breaking your fast. Whoa! Break fast. Crazy. What's the last one? Samantha says, I'm 22 years old and I just realized that this little piggy went to market doesn't mean he went food shopping. (laughs) Saul says, I was today years old when you ruined my childhood. Little Piggy is bacon, for those of you that didn't get it. Little Piggy didn't go shopping. So these are funny, but the reason I bring these up uh, is because I think it's actually possible for this same effect to carry over into other areas of our life. And I ask this question tonight, what if you have been getting your faith wrong all of these years? Is it possible that you have heard or believed something that the world tells you to be true of your faith and that you've believed it for so long that you've missed an elementary truth right in front of you? Like, is Christianity just like all other world religions that teaches you how to be a good person? Does Christianity merely teach us morality? And in light of that, as we become good people, do our good works give us a place where we get to go to heaven? It doesn't take a whole lot of social awareness to know that the majority of our world believes that this is true, right? Americans and even self-professed Christians in America have this core belief. We are good people, and because we are good people, we get to go to heaven. I'm going to challenge that a little bit tonight. And it's not going to be me that's challenging it. We're going to open up to Ephesians 2, where Paul is writing to believers in Ephesus about this very topic. What role do we play in our salvation? Is it our good works? How does this play out? 
So if you have your Bibles with me, open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll have it up on the screen as well. You can use a Bible app. I won't be offended. If you're checking your fantasy football score, I will be offended. So Ephesians 2. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does that mean? There is a lot going on, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to walk us through this, and we're going to go kind of verse 3 back up to verse 1. So, we were by nature children of wrath. Paul is telling the Ephesians and he's telling us, guess what? Your DNA is not good person. Your DNA is sin. He traces this back to Genesis 3, right? We know at the beginning of time, God created man in his image to be with him. He said, creation is good. He created Adam and Eve and he said, creation is very good. But what happens? The serpent Satan enters the garden, he tells them lies, and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one tree, God said, here you go, have your way with it. Do what you want, you're in perfect communion with me, just don't eat from this tree. And what do they do? They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that very moment, sin entered the world, and it entered into our DNA. You see, our ancestry dates back to Adam and Eve, Sin is in our bloodline. As you spend any amount of time around kids, you'll begin to experience how true this is. I was volunteering last weekend in the 18 to 24 month old, so one and a half to two years old classroom. Parents, grandparents, guardians come and drop off their cute little babies and they say, see you after service, angel. And then reality sets in, right? I'm like, all right, we're going to do our story time, okay? No! I'm like, holy smokes. Story time's over. They're playing with the church's toys. Two little girls are fighting over a slide. And what do they say? Mine! I'm like, mine? This slide's not yours. These babies, their favorite words are no in mine. And what they actually love to do is the exact opposite thing of what you tell them to do, right? In little, little kids, this is true. We see sin alive and active. And it's easy to have two responses to that story. One is just to laugh and say, oh yeah, it's funny because they're little and cute, right? And the other one is to say, actually, Yeah, it may be true of them, but that's just because they're toddlers. We dismiss the truth because they're little and they're not as mature and wise as us. But isn't it true of you and me? Isn't it true that you and me also love to say no? And we love to say mine. The text says very clearly that we follow the course of this world We live in the passions of our flesh. We carry out the desires of the body and the mind. This is true of you and me. 
One way while I was in college that this was very evident was I said no to God and his, his call on my life to live a life of purity. I knew I grew up in the church. I knew that I was supposed to live a life of purity, abstaining from drunkenness. Guess what? I said no. I thought drunkenness was the answer. God said the call is to sexual purity, to not engage in lustful thoughts or sexual relationships. Guess what? I said no. Maybe that's you tonight too, right? You know the commands of scripture, but you're saying no. Maybe you're partnering that with mine, and you're saying, okay, God, I'm going to give you certain aspects of my life. You can tell me where to go to school, but you're not going to control the way I live. You're saying mine to your sin life. You're putting God in a box. You're saying you can have all of this, but you can't have this. You're holding something with a tight fist. Or maybe mine looks like seeing somebody in need, maybe even a friend in need. And you look at their situation and you just say, that's an inconvenience. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost me my time. It's going to cost me my energy. It's going to cost me my plans or my money. We think that everything is ours. We're entitled people. We follow our own desires. And what's the result? Verse 1 says, we're dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. We've talked about it before, but the word trespass means to cross a line. The word sin means to miss the mark. So what's the line or what's the mark that we have to meet? It's perfection. From the fall of man, God has given us his law and he has said, here you go. If you can live this perfectly, that's how you get into right relationship with me. Apart from Christ, all you have to do is read the Bible, know the Bible, live it out perfectly. I stumbled across a verse a couple weeks ago in the James Bible study at Kirkwood, and it said, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So the verdict? Guilty. Right? Maybe you look at my situation and you're like, okay, Jordan, you're definitely guilty because look at all those things you did. Clearly that's wrong. You're an idiot. But not me because I didn't curse. I didn't engage in sexful, sex and lustful thoughts. I didn't engage in drunkenness. So I'm pretty good. I challenge you with this. Have you ever envied other people's lives? Ever disobeyed your parents? Talked poorly about somebody without them knowing? Spoken a harsh word at all? Or even been selfish in your thoughts or motives? You see, we serve a God that is big enough to not just watch our actions. He knows our thoughts and he knows where our heart is at, even when we're doing good things. He can look at our good works and say, yeah, you're doing that to make much of yourself. If anybody in here thinks that they have lived a perfect life, raise your hand. Anybody. 
there's no takers, right? We all know that we are guilty, and we can handle the word guilty, but what we don't want to handle is this word dead. The word that Paul uses, you were dead. I'm no stranger to death. I've experienced death uh, within my family, close relatives and distant. But what comes to mind when I hear the word death was actually my first experience with death. I was nine years old, living near Fort Dodge, Iowa, and my great-grandmother was in a nursing home. She'd been in for a couple years, very traditional old lady, loved to knit and all that jazz, sweet as can be, and my family would often go visit her and just give her company and talk to her while she knit. Well, nine-year-old Jordan said, hey, mom, it's been a while since we went and visited great-grandma. It had been like three weeks. So what do we do? We get in the car and we go to visit my great-grandma. I remember, again, as a nine-year-old, walking down the wing that her room was in and being met by my grandparents weeping. And I didn't know initially what that meant, so what did I do? I peered into her room and I saw her in her bed, shriveled to the bone, her skin blotchy and discolored, cold to the touch and still as a statue, and in that moment, I knew that she was dead. Think of the imagination of a nine-year-old that I could think, oh, maybe she's taking a long nap, or she's going to wake up and she's going to respond to me. No, even my nine-year-old imagination did not look in that moment and think, she's going to respond. We are naive to think that we are any different spiritually. Without Christ, this word dead means dead. You're not paralyzed with the opportunity of healing. No, you are dead. You have no ability to respond, no ability to desire or react. So what hope do we have? Verse four starts with, but God, but God, the greatest short phrase in the history of the human language, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. While we were dead, against God in every way, with no desire to please him, let alone an ability to please him. We were dead. But God, he acted out of his love for us, not because you're lovely, not because you have anything to offer him, because he loved you, he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus. Jesus. 
and we see God's character explained here as being rich in mercy. Verse 5, by grace you have been saved. These two words, mercy and grace, that are thrown around a lot in church language, church vernacular, but we really don't grip what they mean. If you're taking notes, here's a good definition of mercy for you. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Do you know what we deserve? This world will tell you that you deserve good, that you deserve heaven. The word of God tells us that apart from Christ, we deserve punishment. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve an eternity separated from God the Father with no hope. That is what we deserve. But God is rich in mercy. He withholds that from us and no, he sends Jesus, the king of grace. Grace, getting what you absolutely do not deserve. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve and grace is getting what you absolutely do not deserve. We find that in Christ. This call to live a perfect life, Jesus did it. He did it for you. He stepped down from heaven onto this earth to live the perfect life that you couldn't live. And beyond that, he went to the cross. In excruciating, humiliating death, the worst that you could ever imagine, that you deserved, you and me, we deserve to hang on the cross and to bear not only the physical suffering, but the spiritual suffering, the wrath of God that our sins deserve. It was cast out on Jesus for your sin, and he took it. He willingly took your punishment. He willingly took your place. But that's not all. He died on the cross to pay our debt. We can celebrate that, right? We can celebrate that our debt has been paid, but what about the empty tomb? It's one thing to have our debt paid, but then what about Jesus, right? Is he still in the tomb? No, he is risen. And what that promise is in Christ's resurrection is that he has victory. And he has given us his victory. We used to be subject to our death. We had no way out. We were subject to our sin, to our brokenness, and like Adam and Eve, following the lies of the enemy. But Christ in his resurrection gives us victory. He says, come into relationship with me, I will give you my spirit so that you are no longer dead but alive. You are alive in me, you are alive in Christ. It's incredible. You guys, we cannot sit here and think about this news and move on from it. We have to be amazed each and every time we stumble across the fact that we were dead with nothing to offer God, but he, rich in mercy because he loved us, made us alive in Christ. 
That's not something to graduate from. Why would he do that? Verse seven says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, so that we might marvel forever at how good Jesus is in this lifetime and eternity on end, that we might marvel at the love and kindness extended to us in Christ. That is why he did it. I hope right now the reaction is, sign me up. Sign me up. This sounds like something that I want because the dead thing, I feel it. The victory thing, I don't. So how do I get there? What do I have to do? The age-old response, what must I do to be saved? Verses eight and nine say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Grace through faith. I missed this early, early on in my faith walk. I missed this, that it's not only salvation that is an incredible gift, but even your faith. Your very ability to believe in the truth of the gospel is a gift. So what do we have to do? Receive. Your response is it, and the faith is gifted to you. So you're saying there's no works? Verse nine, not as a result of works. That's what the Bible says. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because here's the reality. If you and me could play a part in our salvation, do you know who we would boast in? We would boast in ourselves. We would say, look how good I am. Look at all the good I've done to outweigh all the bad. Look at me. But God will not share his glory. God will get all glory in salvation by saying, you don't have a part to play. It's not your works. One incredible truth that we have to cling to in this is looking at the tense of the verbiage in verse eight. For by grace you, anybody, grace you have been saved. Past tense. You have been saved. The grace of God that purchases your salvation also secures it. And that is why our works cannot play a part. Because if we can earn our salvation, surely we can lose it. I don't know about you guys, but I am prone to wander. How many of you guys have heard that song, prone to wander? That is so true of me. And if I could earn my salvation, I would lose it quick. Because the reality is, apart from Christ, I am still broken. In Christ, I still have sin that I have to carve away and plug out of my heart. It's still there. I'm fighting it. But the reality is, if I could earn my salvation, I would lose it. 
The good news is, that's not the case. God's grace secures our salvation. So maybe this doesn't sit well with you. Maybe you're like me, you're, you're a hard worker, you like to earn things. I know plenty of people that are like that. They hear this news and they say, that sounds cheap. It's too easy, right? There's a story that I stumbled across, thought it was uh, really, really helpful. And it was from a coal miner in the early 1900s. These guys are like the prime example of like gritty, dirty, nasty, hard-working dudes that have had to earn literally every single thing in their life. This coal miner is the one that's wrestling with the free gift of salvation. He's just like, dude, pastor, I've earned everything. I think I can earn salvation too. What do you got for me? So the pastor said to him, have you been working today? The miner replies, yes, I was down in the mine. Pastor replies, how did you get out of the pit? Did you pay? The miner says, of course not. I just got into the cage and was pulled to the top. Pastor replies, were you not afraid to entrust yourself to the cage? Wasn't it cheap if it didn't cost you something? The miner said, oh no, it was free for me, but it cost the company a lot of money to sink the shaft. You see, it was in that very moment that the miner realized that the salvation that was free to him was not cheap to God. Just because it's free to you doesn't mean that it's cheap. It cost God his only son. It cost God his only son coming to earth, stepping down out of perfect union in heaven with him to live in a broken world, to take on the weight of the cross and the wrath of his father. That's what it costs. That speaks to those of us that, A, think it's cheap because we see the great cost, but there's a flip side to it too. There's those of us in this room that wrestle with guilt and shame, and we think, surely he couldn't love me. If he knew what I had done, surely he couldn't have done that for me. But he did. That's the God we serve, not because of what you can offer him, not because of what you can do, but because of who he is, because he is rich in mercy, because he is full of grace, because he loves you. Who are you to say whether you're worthy or not? The God that created the galaxies, that created the universe, we look around, we're in awe of creation, he created you, and he said you're worth it. He sent Christ to the cross knowing every single thing that you were already going to do, and he said they're worth it. There's a verse in scripture that actually says God was pleased to pour out his wrath on his son. That's how much he loves you. That is radical. That God was pleased to break his son because you were worth it to him. Please hear me when I say, you have nothing to offer God, but he loves you anyways. You see, saving faith is a gift, not a reward. 
This is the elementary truth that we miss today. Because everything around us tells us, do more, measure up, earn it. No, saving faith is a gift, not a reward. Here's your response. Receive it and enjoy it. Don't try to earn it or labor for it. As we place our faith in Christ, we experience a new reality. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. Some of your translations may say masterpiece or creation. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The love of God that saves our soul will also change our lives. That is the truth. Because believing is not just an intellectual knowledge of what God says to be true. It is the heartfelt belief that it certainly is true. And it is stepping in and trusting that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. That will change you, and it will change you drastically. Remember the things I told you about my college life? Here I am. I have the opportunity to meet with college students on a weekly basis and talk to them about Jesus. If you would have told me that my sophomore year of college, I would have called you insane. God changes people. I look around this room and I even see faces that God is changing right now. Because they stepped out and they said, okay, I don't know everything, but I trust that Jesus paid the price that I couldn't pay. And God is changing lives. You see, God saves us not only to escape wrath, but to create something beautiful out of us. This word workmanship or masterpiece, God has more for us than to just give us a get out of jail free card. He calls us his masterpiece. And we who once walked in our sins and trespasses following the course of the world are now given a good path a grand, God-given plan to walk in. The result of gospel transformation is a life lived in gratitude. Y'all have time for one more story? Yeah? Okay. Good story that really draws this out. It's a little bit dark, so bear with me. Husband and wife in a very, very rough marriage, not God-honoring. The wife is a stay-at-home wife. The husband is a hard-working factory man that has actually oppressed his wife. He's given her this long to-do list of things that says, this better be done before I get home. And the wife knows that she better have it done or there's a consequence. Because you see, when the husband gets home from his factory job, he's gonna run his finger along the countertops. He's gonna check the tables, he's gonna check the windowsills, and he's gonna look at her to-do list, and he's gonna make sure it's done right. And if not, she is subject to 
harassment. She is subject to abuse. This wife, for whatever reason, stays with her husband. She bears the weight of this to-do list for years. And the husband eventually ends up diagnosed with a stage four lung cancer from his factory job. Dies in quick timing. This wife is left distraught. She's wrestling with all the baggage of the abuse and harassment, let alone now being widowed. And she goes into a downward spiral. Fast forward 10 years. This gal has remarried. She has plugged in to a church and found a man that loved and followed Jesus and actually loved her in a way that Christ loved the church. He laid down his life for her. He served her in a way that she had never been loved before. Through this process, this gal had gained a lot of weight in her depression and coming out of her depression had then lost all of her weight. So she's a year into her new marriage and she's unpacking a cardboard box that has some of her old clothes that she used to fit into. She reached her goal weight and her celebration was, I'm gonna put on this pair of jeans that used to fit just right. So she puts on the jeans and she reaches into her pocket. What she pulls out is the to-do list. And she weeps. She weeps not because she feels the brokenness of her old marriage. She weeps because as she reads the list, she now sees that she is doing every single thing that she was doing for her previous husband without even thinking about it. No weight, no oppression, no requirement. No. He loved her. He served her, and out of an overflow of her heart, she looked at this to-do list and she said, this is not even hard. I'm doing this and more because of his love for me. That is the way the gospel can and will transform our lives as we step into faith. As we leave this place tonight, the gospel must work in our hearts. It must show up. Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've never heard the good news of the gospel, or maybe you've heard a false narrative about what it takes to go to heaven. Maybe tonight is the first night that you truly trust that Jesus' work on the cross is enough for you. In your heart, right? You've said it in your mind, but even then, you've still been working really hard, afraid of what God thinks of you. Maybe tonight, your application is meditating on his grace and walking in absolute freedom. Just like this wife in her new marriage, your, your response is to walk in freedom. It's no longer being oppressed by a to-do list for an angry God. No, it is responding to a loving God in a way that honors him and lifts him high. What might this look like in our schoolwork? 
For me, I was always trying to get really good grades because I cared what people thought about me. Whether that be my parents, my peers, or even grad school programs. I worked really hard, and I felt the weight of it. School was overwhelming. Any amens to that? School sucked, I'll say it. School sucked. But as I came to know Christ, school was an opportunity for me to glorify God in how I applied myself, not because he necessarily cared about the grade on the report card, but that I was working hard in worship of the opportunity he had given me. He placed me at a school and gave me a degree to work hard for to glorify him. Class became something that I didn't just check off the list, but I went too excited to engage in relationships and meet people and think about the kingdom. Sometimes with an earbud in my ear listening to sermons. Don't advise that. What about your career path? For me, I was always burdened thinking about finances because I grew up in a family that was tied on money. I thought, what can I do to make a ton of money and be comfortable? And then everything changed. God said, no, guess what? You're going you're gonna to work in ministry. <laughs> There's not a big paycheck in ministry, for those of you that didn't know that. But he said, no, what if instead of making a paycheck, you would make a difference? Another area I wrestled with was body image. Uh, I had struggled with anorexia and bulimia, got into bodybuilding at one point, and the weight that I felt with body image, it was, what will people think of me? What do I look like because I want people to think I look good? This was flipped on its head, too. In following Jesus, I had the opportunity to steward my health, to delight in God, to think about the body that he had given me and say, wow, this is an incredible gift. The ability to walk and talk and eat and move is a gift. And I can delight in God and how I move and eat. And my body was an opportunity to serve other people. I didn't simply get in shape so that people would look at me and say, wow, look how good he looks, which literally never happened, or look how big he is, which also literally never happened. But no, I was healthy and I was in a position where if people said, hey, can you come help me haul timber? I could say yes. If people were to say, hey, we need, we need people to clean up trash at the stadium, will you do it? I would say yes, because I was physically able to do it. These are just a few ways that the gospel can have drastic implications on your life. If you were to look at my report card, it didn't look a lot different. But the freedom I felt was drastically different. If you were to look at my body image, it did not look drastically different. But the way I approached it was freeing. If you looked at my approach to my career path, that was different. A lot different. A lot different. But there is freedom because I wasn't worried about a paycheck. I was worried about making a difference. And I trusted that if God could call me from death to life, surely he will provide a paycheck. The same is true for you tonight. If God can call you from death to life, he can provide in radical ways for you. 
Maybe tonight you have believed in Jesus as your savior, but if I were to ask you if he is your Lord, you may waver. Because you see the word Lord means that he has control over everything, that he's your master. Is there something that you've been clinging tight to, that you've been saying mine to? I just got done talking about how if Jesus can call you from death to life, he can take care of anything else. Do you believe that? Because if you can believe in Jesus as your savior, I promise you, you can trust him as your Lord. What would it look like to say, God, I'm in this relationship and I don't know if it's honoring to you. What would you do with it? What would it look like to say, God, I don't know what the heck you have for my summer, but what would you do with it? It's easy to say, oh, it's my summer or my graduation plan, but what about God? What would he have you do? Would you prayerfully seek him and what he might do in your life? Would you ask yourself if Jesus is Lord? And lastly, I feel that there's people in this room that have actually done both, right? They say, hey, Jesus, you're my savior. You're my Lord, and I've been walking with you, and I'm just downright frustrated. I'm disappointed. I don't feel this victory that Jordan is talking about. I feel beat up. I feel chewed up and spit out. That's what I feel. Tonight, would you meditate on the fact that he calls you his masterpiece? He calls you his masterpiece. He gets to the root of your identity and he says, no, this is what is true of you. Not your struggle, not your pain, your heart. And I have made you new. And you are a masterpiece and you need to keep walking. Because walking is pretty simple. It's pretty elementary, right? My 18 and 24 month olds last weekend, they were walking. Walk, one step, one foot in front of the other, trusting that God will show up, that he will take your pain, that he will take your struggle, and he will make that into something beautiful. Keep walking. And as you walk for weeks and months and years, you will eventually be able to stop and look back and see how far God has taken you. I trust that to be true. So no matter where you're at tonight, I ask that you wrestle with this text. And as you wrestle with this text and respond in worship, know that there will be people down in front at the end of this all to pray with you to work through hard questions, to pray through things that you need God to gift you because we can't muster it up. All right, pray with me. God, you are so incredibly good. God, would you help us tonight see how big and how rich in mercy you are. Would we wrestle with the unfathomable grace that you extend to us? Jesus, that you would come not because we are lovely or because we have something to offer you, but no, you loved us 
while we were unlovely, while we wanted nothing to do with us, you came for us. God, I pray that you would gift us with faith, that we would find new life in you, that we would feel the weight lifted to measure up, and that we would just respond to you in thanksgiving. Lord, would it be true of us that your grace calls us deeper, that we're not trying to just take you for granted, but no, we want to worship you tonight. Help our hearts engage as we worship now. Pray this in your name, amen.